Welcome back to the Kansas City Symphony's amazing, riveting, incredibly insightful podcast, Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. I am not biased at all, but I am Jason Sieber, the Associate Conductor of the Kansas City Symphony. I'm Stephanie Brimhall. I'm the Education Manager. I'm Mike Gordon, Principal Flute of the Kansas City Symphony. So these next two weeks at the Symphony, we were supposed to be performing two incredible films for you on our Film Plus Live Orchestra series. We were going to be doing the next installment of the Harry Potter series, which was Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, with music by Nicholas Hooper. And we were also going to be performing John Corleano's score to the Red Violin, which won him the 99 Academy Award for Best Original Score. And Joshua Bell recorded all of the many solo violin parts in that movie, and he was scheduled to perform it with us live here in KC as well. And we're super sad to be missing that because these film concerts are always awesome. They're a lot of fun. I, you know, one of my favorite parts of my job is that I get to conduct such a variety of programs at the symphony. But I have to say the three or four films that I get to conduct with the musicians every year are definitely among my very favorite. They're challenging. They take a lot of focus. They're they're very rewarding. Uh, but more than anything, they're fun. And the audiences that come to them always have a good time. There's nothing like watching a movie with, you know, 13, 1400 other people at the same time. That's an experience you can't get in a movie theater. But more than anything, it's the experience of hearing a live orchestra and an incredible live orchestra at that, the Kansas City Symphony, bring these films to life. And, you know, Stephanie, you're right. Harry Potter has been postponed, actually, to next season. We've been doing all the Harry Potter films, so we're actually just moving the Order of the Phoenix to next year. Uh, I believe it's in January of 2021 it's going to be. So if you're bummed like we are that we're not doing that this week, I suggest you watch the movie at home. It won't be quite the same because you don't have the awesome Kansas City Symphony playing live, but it's still a good movie. Great score by Nicholas Hooper. Yeah, if you've never been to one of these film concerts, it's an amazing experience. You know, typically in a movie theater, you've got the the film screen being the uh, the one and only you know focus of your attention, and the music is there and it's supporting the action and the plot and. Uh, you know, making you energized when you're supposed to feel energized and sad when you're supposed to feel sad and you're almost not aware of it a lot of the time. Uh, but in Heltzberg Hall, we put a screen above the orchestra so you can uh, see the film, but the orchestra is literally uh, at center stage and it becomes the focus of of the film. And you notice parts of the score of films that you know so well that you've probably never even heard before uh, because your attention is elsewhere when you're watching it uh, at home or or in a theater. Uh, and it's just an incredible experience for the orchestra. Uh, I, you know, I play, have played films uh, in Hellsburg Hall now that have been dear to me since I was a kid. And I still uh, get a thrill out of playing music uh, that I know so well uh, for the first time. And there is an incredible amount of music in these films. Playing these concerts is often uh, more intense even than playing a two-hour uh, subscription concert with an overture and a concerto and a symphony. There is so much music in these films, and uh, we go pretty much nonstop. So there's a lot of music in the films. I mean, it's two and a half hours, you know, and in a two-and-a-half-hour film, that's a whole lot of music that's thrown in there. And really often when we get the orchestra together to uh, rehearse these, there's sometimes just two rehearsals. So two, two and a half hour rehearsals um, that we get before we, you know, do three or four nights of concerts. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. Um, 
a lot of the things that I conduct have one rehearsal, movies have two, and it's crazy trying to put, you know, especially a John Williams score, for instance. You mentioned that in a two and a half hour movie, there's a lot of music. In a typical two and a half hour John Williams scored film, you're, you're going to have at least an hour and 45 minutes of music, sometimes more. And of course, when we're in the rehearsals, we skip all the dialogue that doesn't have music with it to save time. But it's still a scramble to get through every scene of music at least once. And just depending on what the score is and how taxing it is, especially on the brass players, um, what I'll try to do is do most of the louder, harder stuff on the first day, uh, which is usually one day before the first performance. And then for the second rehearsal on the day of the first concert, a lot of times I'll skip many of those scenes or try not to dwell on them too much so that we don't wear everyone out before they have to come back a few hours later and perform it again. So when we do those rehearsals, are both rehearsals um, with the actual film, like are they, do they both include the technical side of it or do we get to rehearse the music by itself and then combine it with the film or does it all just start all together? Yeah, usually the movie is playing for both rehearsals. Uh, Again, we skip over the dialogue, but sometimes depending on what we've had in the hall right before we start the rehearsal process for a film, Um, we might not have time to load everything in. So sometimes the movie's not playing on the big screen, but it's definitely playing on the small monitor that I have in front of me because I, of course, have to try to coordinate uh, the music that the orchestra's playing with the movie. And that's half the challenge, of course, is trying to make that coordination happen. So speaking of that coordination, can you talk us through all of the different elements that go along with, you know, extracting the music and then putting the live music back in and then syncing it all up with everything that's happening on the screen. Like, how does all of that work? It's a pretty complicated process. And actually, I get a practice video uh, a few months before the rehearsal and performances along with the score. So not only am I learning the music to these movies, of course, I'm also learning how it fits with the film and everything that I'm going to see on my monitor to help me coordinate that Uh, when we're actually rehearsing and performing is the same thing that I get sent at home, um, you know, several months in advance. So I have many opportunities to practice the coordination. And, uh, but yeah, I definitely have to know not only the music really well, but how it all fits together. And if I could say one thing about how Jason prepares uh, for these films that he might not say for himself, I often, uh, weeks before one of these film concerts, will see him just wandering the halls with his scores, which, by the way, are usually enormous for these (laughs) films. I mean, just physically huge, you know, inches thick. Usually both acts will come in separate books and, uh, and then, and then he'll sometimes be sitting there in the, uh, in the little side office, uh, behind the, the hall and, and just be looking at it and marking, you know, these scores sometimes will have time cues or they'll have, you know, some other kind of indications. And he has to process all of this information in addition to the music itself, which he would have to process, uh, you know, for anything else that wasn't a film. I mean, it's truly a, uh, a, cognitive uh, feat that he does every time we do one of these. So I second all of that. I mean, Jason is always incredibly prepared, but it's also music that's incredibly difficult to play too, right? And to conduct on top of all of that other extra stuff as well. Yeah, I appreciate both of your compliments. I mean, that that means a lot. And it, it is a lot of work. And you know, it's several layers, as Mike just mentioned, is uh, especially it's several layers of, of thinking all at once because you're trying to coordinate, you're trying to lead an orchestra, you're trying to interpret all these symbols that are coming across your screen. 
I kind of compare it, probably the closest thing that we have to it is conducting a Broadway musical where you're following singers and actors on stage and knowing when to start and stop and how to follow. And there's a lot of spontaneity to it, of course. Maybe conducting ballet, where you're, same thing, you're conducting a, a difficult score of music leading an orchestra um, in one area while you're trying to watch something that's higher than you way up far away and make sure that everything coordinates with the dancers. So there's definitely several layers of complex thinking that are going on at once. I've definitely become better at it, but I remember the first few times I did it, I was scared to death. Actually, the very first time I conducted the Kansas City Symphony was one of these film plus live orchestra concerts, Pixar in concert, which I found out from colleagues around the country afterwards is one of the toughest ones to do. So I kind of had baptism by fire. Can, can I actually tell a really quick story about that particular concert? Because I remember please. it. And uh, I remember seeing you a few days before the concert, and you said, uh, look out, there's this uh, pretty hard flute solo in the score to Ratatouille. Yep. And I'd never seen Ratatouille. I'd never heard the music. I mean, these film scores are always kind of difficult, like I said, and especially the Pixar films. And yeah. we took just about the hardest part of every Pixar film and put it all into one concert. And so we get this, I'm sitting there and I flip through my uh, my part and get to the, the Ratatouille section. And it is just a wall of notes. <laughs> and it's marked really fast. And... And unlike in real life, where you could maybe politely say to a conductor, hey, could, is there any chance we could try this just a little bit slower? No, because you're set to a film. There's no flexibility. You just have to go like a bat out of hell. And so I, I remember that concert and uh, you did great. And I appreciated the warning. I try. I try. I try to help people out. And of course, we didn't know each other very well back then. And I, I had heard you play a couple of times. I'm like, oh, he's going to nail this. But I probably also want to make sure he knows that it's in there because it's it was deceptively difficult. It was crazy. One of the hardest films I've heard that it is to conduct, but it was I've I've played it a few times in an orchestra, and uh, I felt that it was hard to even kind of follow along with. Was uh, is the Wizard of Oz, mm, um, yep. especially when the Munchkins are singing um, the it, when they're on the Yellow Brick Road and they're all singing. And they don't yeah. quite sing in time, but it's really incredibly difficult to predict where it's going to go. And to be in line with it, I mean, you really have to be watching the conductor and the conductor really has to know where it is. And I, I, I feel like you're just pulling it out of thin air. Like, yeah, I think it goes here. Sure. Yeah, I've heard horror stories about the Wizard of Oz. Actually, my predecessor, Aram, uh, I think conducted that with the symphony. And so far... I've been able to avoid it. I'm trying to avoid it at all costs. That one and Singing in the Rain, I hear, are both incredibly difficult to coordinate with the film. So Cleveland Orchestra, Vienna Philharmonic, if you're listening out there, please, I'd love to come in and conduct a movie with you, but let's not do Wizard of Oz or Singing in the Rain. Let's let's stick with something that I've already done, please. To be fair, they are excellent films. And incredibly fun to watch with orchestra. Yeah. Jason just doesn't want to conduct it. That's true. I mean, I want to <laughs> conduct it, but I, I, let, let me get a few more under my belt first. You know, one of the ones that really surprised me, I think it was maybe last season, we played Mary Poppins. And, you know, I've seen Mary Poppins however many times since I was a kid. It never occurred to me how much ridiculously hard music there is in that show. But, uh, Jason, so we've, we've been talking a little bit now about... Um, you know, how you coordinate with these different films. But I'd love for you to get 
uh, a little more specific for everybody and explain sort of how this works, because it's actually really different uh, for different films, uh, modern films. Uh, there's often a click track. There's, uh, there's symbols on your screen that help coordinate some of these older films. None of that exists, and you just have to kind of do it by eye and by ear, uh, and all are challenging. So I'd love for you to talk about that a little bit. I think it's really going to be interesting for everybody. Yeah, it really depends on the film, and I've I've actually there's three real systems that are used to coordinate the music with the film. Um, I've had experience now doing all three of them. The most popular now is definitely click track, where every single musician or at least the conductor has an earpiece over one ear that has a metronome basically going. Um, we use that a lot with the Kansas City Symphony, especially for more of the modern films that we use. And there's pros and cons to that, obviously. I mean, the fact that we're all hearing exactly the same beat, and when the tempo changes, we all hear the same change together, that's a real plus, especially in the faster, more difficult scenes, like a big chase scene or something like that. It just kind of helps us all keep together. But the, one of the cons of it, of course, is that if I'm not exactly 100% with the click, if I get very slightly ahead or very slightly behind, even for a few beats, half the orchestra goes by what they hear and half go by what they see. So I really have to know all the tempo changes extremely well uh, in order for us to stay together. And then one more con of that, of course, is when you're doing a really beautiful scene of slow music and you hear this It's really hard to try to make music in, in a beautiful and sweet way when you're hearing that click. So there's definitely advantages and disadvantages of it. Well, that was actually going to be my question. I mean, so just to be clear, so you guys actually have like an earbud in that's clicking along and you just wear it in one side, right? Right. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that has to be distracting at some point. Yeah, it is. Like I said, especially during the slow scenes, you kind of get used to it. And every musician has um, a pack on the, that's either on their stand or some people clip it to their belt or something, and it allows them to adjust their volumes at all times. And there will even be times where I'll say, look, guys, this is a really loud scene. It goes on for 10 minutes. It's really hard. I'd recommend you turn your click up a little bit just for this one scene, and then you can turn it down again. Or a lot of times we'll turn it down a little bit if it is one of those slow, beautiful scenes. But yeah, and of course, as musicians, we're always using our ears. And Mike, you can maybe talk about this uh, a little bit more because you're sitting there playing it, of course. But we use our ears more than anything, more than watching a conductor. More, uh, and so hearing a click is great, but we also like to make, it's not an organic way to make music. We like to make music by hearing each other and hearing our parts fit together. Yeah, it's definitely true. It's, it's a really hard thing to, uh, to hear that, uh, relentless click and still make beautiful music. And one of the odd things about the experience, uh, for me in particular, and some of us is that where I sit, I'm completely faced away from the film. So I really have no idea if we've succeeded or not. I can kind of see the reflection of the screen in the window of the booth, you know, a hundred feet away from me in the back of the hall. So I can usually sort of make out what scene we're in. But other than that, I have no idea uh, if if we did it. But yeah, it's really, really challenging because what happens is you either find yourself just relying totally on the click and it makes you kind of subconsciously tune out more from what you're seeing and what music you're hearing from the musicians around you, or you, you know, do it 
kind of more how you normally would. You just listen to your colleagues, what they're playing, you watch the conductor, and you're ignoring the clicks. So to really absorb both and to kind of reconcile them, because it doesn't matter, uh, Jason will have to forgive me for this, but it doesn't matter how perfect a conductor you have up there, it will never be a hundred percent with the click all the time. Uh, and sometimes that's deliberate and sometimes it's not, but you know, in those places where they're not absolutely in agreement and we haven't decided ahead of time what to do, it can be really hard to decide what to do. Yeah. And especially if the click has been laid over, let's say a John Williams score, John Williams doesn't use click when he records the original soundtrack. So when someone, uh, on the technical aspect lays that click track over one of his movies, there are some really awkward, like multi retardanos where the music will really slow down for a bar and it'll really go click, 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 click. And you're, I mean, of course it's a quick thing and you're, you're, I'm guessing sometimes where that click is going to be. So I, there are times where I have asked you guys uh, to just ignore the click for this one measure or these two measures. And then I, you know, everyone marks it like just watch Jason in those two bars. And so it definitely helps. Uh, in those situations. One of the hardest film experiences I remember uh, was actually before Jason was with the orchestra, we did some scenes from Fantasia and Fantasia 2000. And, you know, these films, especially the original Fantasia, uh, was recorded by the legendary uh, Leopold Stokowski. And he had his way of interpreting, you know, these pieces that that we uh, musicians play all the time, you know, Pines of Rome and Firebird and, uh, you know, Beethoven uh, Pastoral Symphony. And and so we're now used to doing them a certain way, which was very different from how Stokowski did them, you know, in the, what was it, the 20s or 30s that film was made, I think. Um, uh. And so playing them in his interpretation so that it would fit with the film, yeah. which was so different from how we were playing that music that was familiar, was really, really difficult. I think the same thing happens with the end credits for a lot of these popular films that we play, because even if we're using the click, a lot of times we'll just turn it completely off when we get to the end credits, because usually the end credits have been arranged in some kind of concert version of the music from that film, and we've played that. I remember when we did... Uh, when we've done the Star Wars movies or like E.T., it's like all of a sudden we're playing this piece that we've played in concert several times, but now we have to follow the click or we have to follow the streamers and the punches. And it took me, you know, I think till my second or third year where I just said, you know what, guys, we're just going to kill the click altogether. And as long because, you know, the end credits, it doesn't have to line up perfectly. Obviously, you can just play. And that's and that's probably the moment where most people in the audience are focusing on the music more than and ever, of course, as well. So it's nice to just be able to turn that off and play. So you just used a phrase that I'm going to be honest, I, I don't really know what that means. And that's streamers and punches. Ah, uh, yeah. So luckily, before the click track, uh, the click track has only been around for a while. Um, if we go way, way back uh, to the older classic films, like Casablanca is a perfect example of this. If you think about a lot of black and white films, um, back then, the conductor only had a clock a literal, not a digital modern clock, of course, but a clock that we hang on our wall with the Roman numerals and a second hand. And at all points in the scene of a score, in the score for a scene, in my 
music, I'll have above every other measure nine seconds. You should be nine seconds into this scene. You should be 12 seconds in this into this scene. You should be 14 and a half seconds into the scene. So I, I'm watching the score with one eye. I'm watching the clock on a screen with another eye. And I'm watching the movie, of course, as well, because sometimes there's hits that have to happen, like someone gets shot and they fall. And I got to time that exactly perfectly. And that really is challenging, of course, to try to keep your attention in three different places. And you try to stay with it as much as you humanly possibly can. But uh, it is very challenging when you remove that that click and that ability to, for all of us to hear the same thing at the same time. So you're saying that you basically have to, like, you're sitting there doing math while conducting all of this really complicated music. You're, like, having to, like... Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, as a matter of fact, there were two scenes in Casablanca that were added uh, for the live concert version that weren't in the original film. And there, everyone that's seen that movie knows that um, there's several scenes where there's like a jazz band, a jazz combo playing live music at the club in the scene. And it kind of, as typical music in a movie, it kind of fades in, fades out at different times. And the band is not steady all the time either. And so they added string parts to that. And I had to try to coordinate the string parts in the live version with the band that was on the screen. And that was a total nightmare. I just remember I actually took a pencil in my score and over every single measure wrote nine and a half seconds, 10 and a half seconds, 12 seconds, 13 and three fourths seconds so that I could really watch the thing. And it wasn't just a matter of trying to stay steady. I had to really fluctuate the tempo quite a bit to stay with the band on the screen. And of course, I could barely hear them too, especially with the live orchestra playing in front of me. That was, I don't want to have to do that again. That was, that was quite challenging. <laughs> I remember that uh, particular scene actually. And I remember how difficult it was for us to get that together. And that happens sometimes, you know, most of the time uh, we pull all the music out of the film, but sometimes there are certain elements like that that have to remain in, uh, you know, another great example. Well, it was Mary Poppins actually. And we also, I think did sound of music at some point, or maybe scenes from sound of music. And so in those cases, you know, it's an iconic uh, song sung by uh, an iconic actress, uh, Julie Andrews, of course. And so, you know, we can't show those films and take out Julie Andrews's voice. You know, people would start throwing things at the stage. So we have to play along with uh, Julie Andrews or whoever it is, their original recording of the soundtrack. And that can be really, really challenging. I wonder if, you, do you put that on your resume? Do you say like, I have performed with Julie Andrews now? <laughs> oh, I have. absolutely. Yeah, You should for sure. That's great. Yeah. yeah. And that's gotten me nowhere. I will say when you when there is singing in the film, you mentioned the Munchkin scene. You you mentioned singing with or accompanying Julie Andrews. That's of course very difficult. And when we did Nightmare Before Christmas, uh, that was tricky because you know there's no room for error when you're accompanying a recorded singing track and you're trying to get the orchestra to play exactly with that person, and they're not going to fluctuate. Of course, I conducted the Little Mermaid with the Houston Symphony uh, this past summer, and it was the same same thing. That was when we definitely had to use click for because. If we're just slightly ahead or slightly behind, it makes it extremely challenging. But, you know, Stephanie, you mentioned streamers and punches, and I did want to talk a little bit about that. We talked about the clock with the second hand. Luckily, in the 1940s, Alfred Newman, the great film composer, came up with a brand new system, and it's now called the Newman system. Um, and it is still used today uh, by many uh, film composers when they're um, figuring out how the music is going to coordinate with the film. Basically, uh, the streamers were lines that would go across the screen uh, for just for the conductor. 
and it would indicate something that's about to happen, either another downbeat coming up or something that had to line up exactly with the film. Um, and the punches were flashes that would occur in the screen. And back then, they didn't have a little monitor right in front of the conductor. This would actually happen on the big screen behind the orchestra as they were recording the soundtrack. And these flashes that would occur were so bright that the conductor could kind of see them out of their peripheral vision. And there might be a punch on every downbeat. Um, if there's a tempo change, many times there'll be a punch on every single beat, like a flash, 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 flash. So you can visually see what the tempo is. And this, of course, really helps coordinate with the film as well. And many times, even if I'm using the click track, um, I'm watching those streamers and punches just as much as I'm listening to the click. And there are times where I'm not using the click. And then, of course, those are everything in staying with the film. When I did um, It's a Wonderful Life, I just used streamers and punches, for instance. And they're, they're visual cues that really help the conductor stay with the film. But they also are great because you can fall a little bit behind or get a little bit ahead. So the, the benefit of using the visual system is that the music can be a little bit more organic, it can be a little bit more symphonic, which is what we're all used to. There's a little bit more flexibility in it. So when you say that that you see them on the screen, that's just for you to see, right? You have your own screen? Right. So now, um, back then, like I said, the conductor would see it out of their peripheral mm -hmm. vision on the big screen. Of course, we don't want the audience to see that as they're seeing it live. So it's just on my little monitor, which is right in front of my stand, and I'm able to, to look at that. And still, I'm able to look at it out of my peripheral vision because I'm looking at the score, I'm looking at the musicians trying to make music and make eye contact with everyone. So uh, it's it's helpful that it's right in my line of vision. I bet, though, in, in the hall that we play in, because we do sit in the, the audience sits in the round, right? So yeah. even at these film concerts, there are people sitting, you know, very close to the stage, stage and kind of alongside the stage. That's probably something that some of our audience can see. Yeah. Actually, a lot of them can see it. Um, the only people that can't see it are the people that are sitting down in the orchestra level below the stage. So you're right. Uh, as a matter of fact, the number one thing I think I hear from people is, I wasn't even watching the movie. I was just watching your screen because I was fascinated with it. And it is pretty cool because you got the streamers and the punches happening uh, in the upper right-hand corner of any film. It'll tell me exactly what measure and what beat we're supposed to be on. So when I'm just using the streamers and the punches or just using a clock, I'm also looking at that, and if I'm slightly behind or slightly ahead, I know all the places in the movie where basically I have to nail a big hit in the music because it goes exactly with something that's happening in the film. So if I'm a little bit behind, I start moving the orchestra ahead a little bit. If I'm a little bit ahead, I start pulling back, and the musicians are so great and so responsive. There are actually times where we get to the end of a measure, and I'll literally just hold the last note for an extra second before going on to the next measure. And they're so good at, at watching and uh, without, you know, their tremendous focus, it, w it really wouldn't work. So there's obviously a lot of moving parts in how this works. I mean, not just the orchestra and the conductor, but I would assume that these films, when, when an orchestra agrees to do one of these films, they probably send a person with that film who not only brings all the gear, but like helps coordinate all that stuff. Do you work with that person? Definitely. Um the any of these film companies will send out usually a couple people. One person will just help with the audio needs of balancing the dialogue with the orchestra throughout the film. Um, one person that is running the film and the click track if there's a click, 
or any of the technical aspects from backstage. And if you see it, it looks like uh, like the draft room at the NFL draft uh, <laughs> of, a, of a team or like a war, the war room at the White House or something. I mean, it's incredible all the equipment they have backstage to run it. But yeah, I work really closely with that person and they are literally my savior during the rehearsal process too because they have either put together an iPad program that I can use right to the side of my stand during rehearsal where I can queue up any scene and even certain moments within a scene that are difficult transitions, it might start a few bars before that. So I could say, hey, that transition didn't quite work. It's really hard. Let's try just these four bars again. And I'm able to cue it up right away. Um, but if I don't have that night, there's been a few times where I haven't had that. Those people are my saving grace because I could say, hey, John, can, can we start around measure 82 in scene 3M3? And they literally, some of them, I don't know how they do it, but they literally like, yeah, sure, here you go, Jason. Boom, and we're at like 78, three, you know, three or four bars before. So they, they definitely helped me out a lot. Well, these movies are, these movie performances are incredible things to put together. They're incredible to, to watch and to listen to. I mean, not just from being um, with around all of those people watching a film, which in and of itself is is a big deal. Um, but really, what these do is they really put the music center stage, <laughs> literally. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I mean, you know, here I find myself when I attend these concerts, um, hearing the music, music that I never knew was in there, and you you never realize how integral the orchestra is to any film. Um, until you can can actually see the orchestra, they're working the whole time. I mean, there's music happening all the time in these films, and it's really amazing. Yeah, that's the other thing that people say is, I was watching the orchestra the whole time. I, I love seeing especially kids on our side seats in the side mezzanines who will literally lean over the edge of the of their of the railing to like watch a percussionist do something fascinating or you know they know the movies already the people that come to these concerts typically already know the film well they know the music pretty well and they're just so fascinated by watching it live but you're right they they also hear music that they've never really heard before because when you're watching a movie at home or in the theater the people that uh, worked in in the Hollywood studios editing, a lot of times they turn the orchestra way down so that you can hear the dialogue, of course. And we don't do that at these concerts. The music, like you said, becomes the central focus. And so all of a sudden people are hearing the music in a completely different way and they're hearing music they never heard or it's moving them emotionally a lot more than it would if they were watching it at home. So I know we've talked a lot about pieces that are, movies that are difficult to work with. Um, do you guys have any... Um, films that you've watched where the music is particularly um, emotional or engaging or that you, it makes you feel differently? Well, for me, uh, one of the, the, the favorite things that we've done on the series is E.T. Ever since I was a kid, the music of E.T. was one of the things that made me want to become a musician. I just remember sitting in the theater with my parents, a young kid, and and being feeling like I was lifted up out of my seat, especially when E.T. and Elliot are flying through the sky. I mean, it was just amazing. Um, but also The Patriot. You know, I've seen that movie a hundred times, and there are two scenes uh, in particular every single time I see them, I cry. And it's not just because of Mel Gibson and Heath Ledger and their great acting and the great writing. It's John Williams' music underneath that really is creating that emotion. Uh, and I could get super nerdy and uh, tell you that I've analyzed the chords at one point. And I'm like, how did he do that? How the heck? And then and I won't tell you what the chords are, but there's this one moment in particular 
Do you guys remember the scene where Heath Ledger is trying to rally the militia in the church? And at first, no one's really reacting. And then all of a sudden, um, one person stands up and John Williams' music starts kind of softly and patriotically. And then more and more people uh, stand up. And as they do, the music just swells. And then there's this moment where um, a man looks down at his like 12-year-old boy and the boy stands up. And I'm like, <laughs> but it's the chord that John Williams uses right when the kid stands up. And I'm like, darn you, John Williams, you did it again. <laughs> you know, one of the things that uh, I think people sometimes don't realize about the scores in these films is that, you know, through most of the films, we're playing, uh, you know, short fragments of the themes. They're kind of coming and going. John Williams in particular, you know, often has particular themes that represent particular characters. So so as the characters are are having dialogue or interaction, he's quickly, you know, switching between them, layering them. And often you really don't hear the full material until toward the end of the film, toward the climax of the film. In the case of, you know, E.T., uh, what is it, the last maybe 10, 15 minutes of the film is continuous music. And that really is all of the most famous music that we all leave the theater humming that we've all known since we were kids. Um, and that's true of a whole lot of these films. So as a musician, the anticipation waiting for the end of the movie when we're really going to get to play the most meaty stuff is really fun. Uh, but for me, uh, one of the things that I really enjoy is when a filmmaker conscripts a piece of classical music that was not meant necessarily for film. And sometimes actually, I think it's not so successful, but there, there is one particular example that always stays with me that I really loved. Uh, and that was, uh, of course, the King's Speech. And in that film, he alternates between uh, Beethoven 7 and actually the introduction of the Mozart Clarinet Concerto. But he mm -hmm. never uses the part with the clarinet. He only uses the orchestra. Mm. So uh, there's uh, a wonderful recording uh, on Spotify that I was just listening to of Carlos Kleiber with Vienna Phil uh, doing Beethoven 7. And specifically in the film, you mostly hear the uh, the second movement. It's just incredible. Uh, and I should also uh, add, uh, before we close today, that lest anyone think this is fake news, in the interim I have looked, Fantasia was actually made in 1940, slightly later. Oh, okay. Than I, than <laughs> okay. I Good thought. catch. But, but uh, you know, I don't want anyone writing us or tweeting at us or... <laughs> We're so good, we cracked our own mistakes during the episode. We don't need any post-edit writers or anything like that. We're good here on Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. Stephanie, what, uh, what particular movies or movie scenes have moved you? So um, I, ever since I saw the movie, The Shawshank Redemption, I have been in love. It's a wonderful film, but in love with the music that Thomas Newman uh, wrote it's it's the entire film um it just the the music that goes along with it adds so much um it it builds tension it creates you know uh, sadness it builds your hope it it just it does all of those things in such incredible ways i i would listen to that soundtrack on repeat just have it in the background it's it's really amazing to listen to so maybe more than recommended listening this week, like we like to end our episodes with, maybe it's more recommended watching and listening <laughs> this week with some of these great scenes from these wonderful films that we've all mentioned. I'm going to give you a little homework assignment too, actually, so you really understand just how much 
music affects a movie and affects a scene. Someone has taken the time to upload the throne room scene, the very final scene from Star Wars Episode Four, on YouTube without John Williams' music. And it's like a two-minute scene, if you remember, when uh, Han Solo, Luke, and Chewie are kind of walking down this long procession um, with uh, to Princess Leia, who's going to give them medals. Whoa, 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 and hang li- on. Wait. What? Don't spoil it. Oh, I haven't come on. watched you've, it yet. You've had since 1977, <laughs> so I'm, I'm all spoiler alert bets are off. So they're walking down this long aisle and literally nothing's happening. So you can actually go to YouTube, just type in throne room, no music, and you can see the scene without John Williams' music. And literally it's the most boring thing ever. And then watch it with his music and it makes all the difference in the world. That's your little homework assignment. You could generally say that music makes all the difference in the whole world. Just a blanket statement. Well put, Stephanie. (laughs) Well put. Well, next week, we'll be discussing one of the most difficult and stressful aspects of being a musician, auditions. Have you ever competed for a job against 100 other qualified candidates? Had five minutes to make your case without ever sharing anything about your previous experience, your name, or even your face? Well, that's how musicians get their jobs in orchestras. We'll break down the whole process for you, and then we'll be joined by Justin White, personnel manager of the Kansas City Symphony. He'll tell you all about why he thinks auditions are fun. Can't wait to hear that next time on Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. 